Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston, and you are at the place where we drill deep into that which must be drilled, and that's oil. And we talk about the lifeblood of the product that comes from oil, and that's diesel. We also drill deep into a subject with our guest of the week. And today we're going to be talking to P. Sean Garney of Scopolitis Transportation Consulting about the recent federal proposed guidelines on hair testing for drug users. He's going to be with us in a minute. In, as well as talking about oil here on Drilling Deep, I also write about oil for Freightways sometimes. You know, one of the blessings or curses of modern journalism is that when it's online, you can see exactly how many people have read your story. It's a real boost to your ego if it gets a lot of hits, or it's a real kick in the butt when you come face to face with the fact that sometimes people don't care what you just spent hours slaving over. But a few weeks ago, I wrote a story about something we talked about here on Drilling Deep, how U.S. diesel inventories measured by day's cover had taken the biggest one-week decline in the history of the series. That series goes back 30 years. What I couldn't believe was how many hits the story got. It might have been the catchy headline declaring the market did something it hadn't done in 30 years, and people wanted to click on the story to find out what that was. But compared to other oil stories I write, the number of hits was really pretty amazing. So there's clearly some interest out there, and I'm here today to tell you that the trend has accelerated. It hasn't dropped another six days, but it has continued to fall. Inventories of non-jet fuel distillate in the U.S. can be measured several ways. We like to look at days cover. That's the number of days of demand that can be satisfied just with inventories. As we've noted before, it's historically down in the range of 30 to 35 days. But when the pandemic hit, it climbed to above 50 days. It stayed above 50 days for eight out of nine weeks at one point. It was the first time in the history of the series that it did that for multiple weeks in a row. It dealt with a lot of things in the market. Demand was soft. Refiners were making more diesel than they normally did because they didn't want to make jet given the collapse in air travel. Jet is a distillate like diesel. And the result was this gigantic stock build. But in recent weeks, you started to hear that refiners were done making too much distillate. They were determined to make some changes in their operations that were going to get those stocks under control. And they did start making less distillate. And demand has picked up. All the statistics show that. The end result is that that drop of six days cover that I mentioned in my stories, the one was so unprecedented, has tacked on another about three days. So from the 50-day level, based on the last week, we're down to about 39.4 days. That's an amazing drop. It's still higher than you would expect at this time of the year, but it is remarkable. There are not yet a whole lot of signs in the market as a result of this. S&P Global Platts did report this week that the spread between diesel in the Gulf Coast and the commodity price of diesel on the CME had risen to its highest level in more than a year. That really was the biggest indicator I could find out there. Otherwise, on the commodity exchange itself, that the gap between crude oil and uh, and diesel, you're really not seeing that much of a change in the spread. But given the fact that production is down so much, given the fact that inventories are down so much, you've got to think that it's going to rise from those historically low levels. The point remains that refiners were determined to get inventories of diesel and other distillates down, and they have. But, you know, for consumers, it may not make much of a difference right now. The price of oil is so weak as a result of the general collapse in equity markets and fears of a new coronavirus spike throughout the world, that any strength in the diesel market relative to crude is likely to be blotted out by the broader fall in oil prices. But it's important to know that that huge glut of diesel we've been talking about for many weeks does appear to be coming to an end because refiners set out to get rid of it, and they're succeeding. 
We're going to pivot now, as we always do, and this time we're going to talk about hair. Specifically, what is the status of hair testing for determining drug use among drivers, and how might it impact the market for drivers, and by extension, the market for capacity, which is already very tight? With me today is P. Sean Garney. He is Vice President at Scope Leaders Transportation Consulting. Sean did a, recently did a webinar on the issue of hair testing, and he's here with me today on Drilling Deep to bring us up to date on where this stands. So, Sean, welcome to Drilling Deep. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's, let's first establish that the Trump administration in September released some guidelines coming out of uh, Health and Human Services on what an agency, a federal agency, needed to do to authorize hair testing for drugs. But it came with a caveat that came with a lot of controversy. That caveat is a second test where hair testing wouldn't be enough, caused a big reaction. Why two and not just one if hair testing is so accurate and so thorough? Yeah, that's a great question, John, and I appreciate it. You know, I'll, I'll frame the issue by first, you know, reminding, reminding listeners that hair testing has been around in the trucking industry for, for a long time. And in fact, the, the federal government's been studying it as a possible alternative for nearly two decades. It was the FAST Act that encouraged, uh, that directed the Department of Transportation to make it allowable once HHS finally created their guidelines. Now, you know, HHS has been studying this along with their Drug Testing Advisory Board and others for an awful long time to see, you know, how to do this best. And hair testing comes with an awful lot of, of advantages that I'm sure we'll talk about here in a minute. But it does come with some some challenges, or at least some perceived challenges. And those are namely the potential for environmental contamination. And that's, that's me getting a positive test, not by virtue of having taken the drug, but uh, being in proximity to the drug, particularly problematic in you know, states that have legalized drugs like marijuana and that sort of thing. Um, so that's one concern. And then the other concern is uh, a potential racial bias or the propensity for a hair sample of a particular color and or thickness to, you know, to absorb and retain a drug sample for longer or quick, more quickly than others. And so because of those two concerns, HHS sort of opted on the side of caution and said that we'll allow this type of testing method, but it, it cannot be the basis of your decision which is why they're going to require the secondary test. Right. So so let me ask you. So the first one on environmental contamination, to put it to a sort of a young people's perspective, um, if somebody's sitting in a room full of marijuana smokers and they don't smoke themselves, uh, they could pick up, I'd say pick up, but they could test positive for marijuana even though they didn't smoke it. Is, is that kind of a... Is that kind of a description of what you're speaking about? Yeah, that, that's the concept. I mean, I think if you speak with hair testing laboratories, the ones that conduct these tests, they'll tell you that they have a lot of very complicated washing protocols that will wash the specimen to try to remove some of that external contamination. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, you know, let's remember too, that if I'm sitting in a room and I'm smoking marijuana, my hair is likely to be environmental contamination contaminated by that virtue too. But um, but that description was absolutely spot on. Uh, and I think a lot of people think that there are, you know, scientific methods to identify that and to, and to clean that hair sample. 
And then the other thing, is that a problem, let's say, with African-American hair? Does it, even if the person isn't smoking it, but if it comes into contact, the nature of that hair, does it tend to hang on to that marijuana or other drugs um, more readily? Is, is that the issue? Yeah. So the other issue that you just touched on is, yeah, the characteristics of the hair, the thickness, the, the color uh, may absorb more quickly and retain for longer. And that that is sort of borne out in the data in a lot of ways, because if you look at the data and compare um, positive, if you have a dual testing sample, right? So people take both hair and, uh, and urine tests at the same time. The positive rate of the hair test is always greater, usually by about 6% or so. But if you look at that disparity among different racial groups, you'll find that um, you'll have more hair positive hair testing positives among certain racial groups that are generally characterized by uh, darker hair, darker and thicker hair colors. Okay. So let's, why don't you fill us in on what happened after that HHS rule was announced? Um, I know that there was, as I said, there was a lot of objections. I know the American Trucking Associations had issues with the second test. I mean, you've explained why you might argue the second test is necessary. So what's happened since September? Yeah, so we're still in the comment period. Um, the Department of Health and Human Services put the notice out, and there's a, I think it was a 60-day comment period this time. And certainly the troops have been mobilized, and for good reason. I mean, if we talk about hair testing and the benefits, there's a lot of companies that do hair testing today, and they do it for a lot of very important reasons. And they're making hiring decisions based on it. But, you know, essentially, urine analysis tests have a lot of problems or concerns, right? I mean, a lot of people say that if you can run a Google browser, well, then you're well on your way to being able to pass a urine test, right? They're highly defeatable. And the detection window is a lot smaller in a urine exam, right? So for marijuana in urine, you know, you might be able to pass that urine test if you smoke marijuana between one and 30 days in the past, right? But the detection window among hair testing is 90 days. And so, you know, and that's the same for, for all drugs, urine or cocaine in urine is one to three days, methamphetamine, two to five days, but always in hair, it's up to 90 days. It can stay in there. And so motor carriers have adopted this as a way to identify lifestyle drug users, right? Not people who can abstain from drug use for long enough to pass the test, but people who, you know, have used, used drug tests or used drugs regularly. And the, redult, the results that they've seen have been have been massive, right? So people, motor carriers who have adopted drug tests um, often see their random rate decline considerably, right? And those random tests, those are typically urine tests, but they're eliminating these lifestyle drug users. And now they're not having as many random positives or post-accident. I mean, J.B. Hunt famously went to zero post-accident positives. Uh, for years and years after adopting hair testing. So so there's a, a big benefit to hair testing, you know, in general. But if you have to then confirm it with a with a a positive urine test, well now you're you're absorbing a redundant cost and a lot of these folks who were positive in hair then turn around and be negative in urine that adds up to a negative drug test altogether. And now, and now what do you do? You probably have to hire the guy. 
Right. And the urine test, as you said, is, is a little easy to trick. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So is the industry coming down on kind of the standard divide on this? I mean, the ATA, I know, was, um, you know, they, they objected to the second test. I'm not really sure what their view is on hair testing in general. Of course, you've got the Trucking Alliance, which is uh, several truckload carriers. They've been very vocal about being in favor of it. And then you've got a wide opposed to it. So is the are the divisions about as you might have predicted? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, American Truck Association strongly supports hair testing. You talked about the alliance. Um, the Teamsters are generally opposed because of this this concept that you might have um, false false positives. Um, you talked about Ida. So I think the the battle lines are certainly being drawn, and you know we'll have to see we'll have to see what happens. I mean, I think if if the proposal is finalized as written today, I think that there's a chance that you could see carriers that are using hair testing today abandon it for the long run. So this is this is a pretty important pretty important fight for both sides. I mean, so you're saying the companies that are using it now, and, and, and you mentioned JB Hunt. I know they're the most prominent that are using mm-hmm. hair testing, you're thinking if they had to fall under the guidance of the HHS rule with the second test, they just drop it totally? I think that's possible. And you'd have to talk to them to confirm. But if the government says by virtue of this rulemaking that it's inappropriate to make a hiring or firing decision based solely on the results of a hair test, well, that's going to make it pretty hard for those companies conducting them today to defend that process, right? I mean, because that's what they're doing today. They're sending folks for pre-employment uh, drug screens or taking a hair test and a urine test. If the hair test comes back positive, they refuse to hire the person. Well, if the government says that that's not appropriate, are they going to take that risk and continue to do that process? I don't know. You'd have to talk to the practitioners about that, but I do think it's uh, sure. I do think it'll be a concern. But let me ask the practitioners, as you call them, would they then just go to urine testing? Yeah, I mean, they're doing urine testing today because that's the that's the only allowable test for DOT regulated, you know, and required tests. So I think, yeah, they may abandon hair testing and just stick with urine testing. I mean, they're doing both now. Now, how does this, all this play into the uh, drug and alcohol clearinghouse? Uh, you, it was rolled out at the start of this year. There's a feeling that this tightening capacity is a, a result of a lot of different things, but that the numbers of people in the clearinghouse have been pretty substantial, and that's mm-hmm. tightening capacity. I know that there were project predictions of this, and they are they may be coming true. Uh, if you had hair testing, what kind of impact do you think that would have on the numbers in the clearinghouse? Yeah, I mean, if hair testing was an allowable testing method, then positive hair tests would be uploaded into the clearinghouse, right? And those drivers that tested positive for hair would have to complete the return to duty process before they could again drive a commercial motor vehicle requiring a CDL. So it could exacerbate the numbers in the clearinghouse as it is. But you know, I want to be I want to be clear on on what we're seeing in the clearinghouse today. And you know, we have about forty thousand violations in the clearinghouse, right? We've got about thirty four thousand drivers currently prohibited from operating a commercial motor vehicle. And co- this has been a COVID year, so it's a little it's a little peculiar, but you know, we're averaging about 900 a week positives, right? And if you analyze that out, we're talking about 46,800 drivers, about 1% of the workforce. 
which is about what was predicted before the clearinghouse came to be known. So yes, the clearinghouse is taking drivers off the road, but are, which drivers do we want on the road anyway? And is it more than we need? Is, is our capacity problem, you know, a problem of identifying too many drug users in the workplace? Or is it a much more complicated scenario that involves driver pay and uh, quality of life issues and that sort of thing, right? Well, I, I think everybody would agree with that. I just do think that, you know, just on kind of a straight market analysis, you know, you say it's only 1%, but, you know, in a tightly balanced market, 1% of supply being taken out, that's far more significant than I think people would give that credit for. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, the market is very tight and, and anytime we lose a driver, it's it makes it a little tougher, um, you know, but the industry is resilient and there are efforts underway to allow younger drivers in the marketplace, provided they you know, can prove they can operate safely. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, the market forces will replace these drivers with safe and qualified drivers. You recently did a webinar, um, I think, with driver reaching about this issue. And uh, you sent out a few questions and answers prior to that to give people an indication of the kind of things you'd be speaking about. Uh, you did have a question in there. Is 200 drivers large enough to generate enough data to be validated? And I guess that refers to the potential size of a, a test sample where a, a company might agree to be one of the first uh, testers of of hair, not the first because there's companies doing it, but you know, to go in on this program and, and, and test their drivers via hair. Is that what you were speaking of? Can you give a little more uh, information on that? Yeah, that, you know, the, the webinar that I gave was a compilation of a number of issues. And um, what we were talking about there were pilot programs that FMCSA is um, proposing to study things like whether or not younger drivers can operate safely or whether or not um, FMCSA should allow drivers to pause their 14 hour window. And they're studying those issues via pilot programs. And they've decided that the relevant, a relevant sample size is somewhere between 200 and 400 to, to get a good representative sample of the industry. Um, so this question about whether or not that's appropriate, but FMCSA is not considering a pilot program for hair testing, um, especially considering the ongoing ongoing rulemaking. So. Okay. Very good. So um, there was another question there. I keep hearing about saliva testing being, being okay. Mm -hmm. So when are those tests going to be available? I hear they are, they are even better than hair. Is that an accurate question? Yeah. So uh, oral fluid testing has also been on HHS's radar for a long time, and they recently approved it for use in the federal hair testing workforce uh, or the federal workforce. So um, we just need the Department of Transportation to complete their rulemaking to allow the trucking industry to use that as 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 a you know as an allowable drug testing method. Now, you know, there's a lot of different characteristics of oral fluid testing too. Namely, that detection window is is smaller, uh, but it's a very it's much less evasive type of testing. Right? It can more easily be conducted. And I think the great potential for hair testing and, you know, the scientists haven't figured it out is, you know, might you be able to produce a oral fluid test that can identify intoxication on roadside, right? For, for certain tests, it certainly can identify the presence of 
of marijuana, the presence of these other things. So I think, I think the future for, for oral fluid testing, the brightest future could possibly be the ability to detect some level of um, intoxication on roadside. But that testing method is coming. There are labs that have been approved. Uh, we just really need the, the Department of Transportation to uh, propose and finalize a rule to allow the trucking industry to use that. So um, I think it'll be good in the future. All right, I'm going to wrap up by putting you on the spot a little bit. Let's say it's a year from now. What do you think is going to happen? By a year from now, where are we going to be on the hair testing issue? Nowhere. I think we'll be nowhere. I appreciate the question. <laughs> I think wow, that, you're very stark. Well, maybe I should you know, cancel the interview. If this is not going anywhere. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're still going to be talking about it, but there are there are some some forces inside the Department of Health and Human Services. I think who have been generally opposed to hair testing, and they'll continue to push back against that. I mean, it was 2015 when Congress told. HHS to develop guidelines. And it was 2020 when they finally produced a proposal. So the inertia, the institutional inertia on this particular issue is very slow. And so I think the best path for advocates is probably going to be, uh, you know, to go to Congress and to get Congress to speak on this again, because um, the institutions are not, are not being very quick uh, so to speak. So we'll have to see. And obviously the election is going to play into that as well. So, um, but if I were betting dollars to donuts, I'd say a year from now, we do not have a finalized rule and we're still waiting for resolution. I won't, actually, I'm going to ask one other question and maybe sure. it's not relevant. Does the view of DOT on this matter at all? Let's say HHS tomorrow approved this, um, and let's assume for a second that the Trump administration stays in office, so we're assuming no big change in personnel, uh, obviously a very big if. But uh, what would happen, what's the DOT's view on hair testing, or does it have one? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the DOT generally is supportive of, you know, expanding the the number of testing methods that are allowable, and I think you know, FMCSA and others have been advocates to, to go to HHS and say, hey, we need you guys to get done. But but that's where all the scientists live, HHS, right? And and so DOT and FMCSA really need to rely on them to get the science right before they can allow it. So I don't think, I don't, I mean, they may be able to act on their own, but I doubt that the Department of Transportation or FMCSA would act without HHS sort of first first getting their thing done. And and if HHS finalizes their rule, I really don't think the Department of Transportation would change that. They would just institute it, right? So HHS says, okay, we're going to do hair testing and you need that, can, you know, that confirmation urine analysis test, then the Department of Transportation will propose to, um, to institute that sort of as written. So I, I think they're supportive, uh, but I think they're relying on their sister agencies to all right, Sean Garney, P. Sean Garney, the Vice President at Scopolitas Transportation Consulting. I want to thank you for joining us today to talk about hair testing and where it might be going. Yeah, I appreciate you. Okay, you have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from Freightwaves. You can find us on all of the major podcast platforms. We're here weekly, and my name is John Kinks, and I've been your host. Thanks for listening.